It is good to be back with you this Sunday. Uh, thankful for the other elders and how they stepped in, and in particular Brandon bringing the word last week. We're going to be in Hebrews chapter 9, so the grace verse that we were able to recite together is part of this passage. And so please open up your Bibles and turn to Hebrews chapter 9. While you're finding that passage, I also want to make one other announcement. We were heavy on the front end with announcements. This is particularly to uh, members of GCC. We are encouraging all of our members to fill out the survey that was sent to you. So if you're a member, you should know that there was a survey sent through email. If you did not get that, please let us know and we will try to connect to the right email address. But we're asking all the members to get, get that back to us as soon as possible. Uh, we would greatly appreciate the feedback. Okay, now, here in God's Word, we're starting in verse 15. Please follow along as I read. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For, will, for where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with, with blood not his own. For then he would, have, he would had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, as it, it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Hear the word of the Lord. This morning, we have another opportunity to gaze upon the new covenant which was established by the blood of Christ. 
And just by way of reminder, in chapter 8, the author, to the, letter, or the author of this letter to the Hebrews, he, he cites Jeremiah chapter 31. And if you recall, he gives us the, the content of the new covenant. And basically, it can be summed up like this. God's law will be written on the mind and hearts of his people. And his people will know him, personally know him. And then lastly, the the third component is that the forgiveness of sins will be made available in full to all of God's people. This is the promise that was made of old, of the new covenant, which Christ fulfilled completely and perfectly. All of his people will have his law written upon their hearts. All of his people will know him personally, walk with him in fellowship and communion. And lastly, all will have their sins forever washed clean by the blood of the Lamb. Now, as we enter into our passage this morning, in verse 15, we read that Jesus is referred to as the mediator of this new covenant. And so for some of us, that concept of mediator may not be as familiar, but just know this, if there is a mediator needed, it means that two parties are estranged. Something has caused a chasm in the relationship. Something's been broken that needs to be brought back together, reconciled. And so there's a need for a mediator in that sense. Knowing that and looking at our passage before us, in this passage we find some really important doctrinal truths that help us understand why there would be a need for a mediator. So there are verses in this particular passage that many have have. Uh, have sought to memorize and and keep in their hearts because they are so important in understanding why God would send his son to rescue a people for himself, why we as people even need someone to come and die in our place. This passage is very helpful. For example, if you've got your Bibles open, verse 27, the passage that we have sought as a as a church body to memorize, and just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. That one little passage actually helps us understand quite a bit. The reason for our appointment with death and judgment takes us all the way back to the garden with Adam and Eve. God told Adam and Eve that they would die if they ate the forbidden fruit. He appointed their death in the event of their disobedience. And the moment of their rebellion, mortality entered into the human experience for the first time. One trespass, according to Romans chapter 5, led to the condemnation for all men. This emphasizes the bounds in which God has ordained Life on earth because of sin, because of the fall. Life is lived one time, and then there is death and judgment. Just as there was for Adam and Eve. Man will die, and then God will judge him. 
for some of us, we need to just let that truth settle in. You have one life. Everyone will experience death unless the Lord Jesus returns. And then you will stand before God Almighty and be judged. Death is part of the divine judgment on sin. Death is the verdict. And according to God's word, all are guilty. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And Brandon reminded us this last week that we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires in the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So this is that estrangement where a mediator is needed, an estrangement between us and God because he is holy and we are sinful. Thinking about this in light of the law, James tells us whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. We are all sinners who have fallen short of the glory of God. Now, when we think about this verse in particular, verse 27, we have to be honest about this reality that if you die in your sin apart from Christ's work, his salvific work in your life, you will be judged by God and spend eternity in hell. In hell. There is a common misconception about the reality of hell. Some people, literature has been written on this, would say, well, hell is a place where the doors, so to speak, are locked from the inside. And people who are condemned to hell will have another opportunity to repent of their sins and confess Christ as Lord. That is not what God's word says. And in particular, verse 27 of Hebrews 9 helps us. This is weighty. This is real. Everybody will live one time and experience death and then stand before God in judgment. So as verse 27 is, is, is stirring in our minds, I want us to also know this has started off heavy that's not the end of the story. There is much glorious hope in this passage. Another important doctrinal truth comes in understanding God's provision. So verse 22 is a familiar verse for many, and it's important that it is. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Some could view that in a negative light, but I want to encourage you to actually view this in in a positive way, that God has actually provided provision for sin. With the shedding of blood, there actually can be forgiveness of sins. Now, when thinking of the shedding of blood, this is an illustration from a book that I found helpful, where a pastor recounts a story where he has an opportunity to counsel a young woman. One pastor wrote a letter describing a troubled young woman. It was her mother who had asked for the meeting. She related how her oldest daughter had been in the emergency room, emergency room four times so far that year. Three times she had cut herself so deeply that stitches were required. Another time she had taken a bottle of pills, survived, and was detained in a psychiatric ward for teenagers. Now back at home, her daughter had cut herself again. 
The pastor agreed to meet with her. The next day, the woman's daughter walked into his office, and this is how the session developed. She wore an oversized turtleneck with sleeves that went down almost completely over her hands. And after a time of gentle questioning and listening, the conversation turned to cutting. She said that when she was upset with herself or upset over the offenses of other people towards her, she would cut herself. It seemed to relieve the tension. Cleaning up the bloody wounds distracted her from from all that she had been going through, all of those uh, problems. She pulled up her sleeves and showed the pastor her arm. And he mentioned how he didn't think he would ever get over the sight of those wounds. That image stayed in his mind for days and was painful every time he recalled it. What could he do for this young woman? All he really knew about biblical counseling was to pray for people and to share the gospel with people. Very small errors in a person's understanding of the gospel seem to result in very big problems in that person's life. The pastor pulled out a pad of paper and drew out for the young woman a diagram of the gospel. He agreed with her that blood can indeed solve problems, but pointed out that the blood did not have to be her own and that the shedding of the blood of Christ has already been done on her behalf. In that session, the Spirit brought illumination and she prayed to the Lord for salvation. And so this reality, yes, it requires blood to solve our very worst possible problems. This passage from Hebrews 9, for God, who in his righteous wisdom determined that sin's penalty is death, also determined, verse 22, that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. Now, to kind of help us think through, why blood? Blood represents life. In Leviticus 17, 11, this is what God's word says. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. So to shed it, to shed the blood, is to enact the curse of death that is due to sin. So from our passage this morning, as we look at Hebrews chapter 9, we see that the shedding of blood or death not only inaugurated the Old Covenant, but it occurred in the Old Covenant repeatedly, over and over again, in order to cleanse the tabernacle and the vessels Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, we're told. And we see in the Mosaic law, blood used to purify the altar, the priestly garments, the tabernacle veil, and more. Really, this repeated offering of the blood sacrifices was all but copies and shadows pointing forward. We've made note of this again and again, and we see it so clearly here where it was once offered repeatedly over and over again to remind the people of their need, we see in Christ once and for all him offering of himself. This is a principle which is at the very heart of the Christian gospel with its insistence that the shedding of the blood of Jesus Christ is the only source of cleansing and reconciliation for the sinner. 
So what was foreshadowed in the law is fulfilled in Christ. This should, for those who are familiar with Scripture, this should sound a lot like the words of our Lord Jesus when he instituted the Lord's Supper. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Matthew 26. In our passage, I want to draw your attention back to the, 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 the first part of the passage. Um, we, we hear from the reader, I'm sorry, we, we hear from the, the author, a better understanding or a different way in which we look at the new covenant, a, a way to understand the new covenant. He introduces in verses 16 and 17 the concept or the comparison of the new covenant with a will to help both the original recipients of the letter and us understand the work of Christ on our behalf. So here, verses 16 and 17 again. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. And so a a last will and testament is a very important official document that really represents the wishes of a person once they die for where their possessions or belongings go. Who do they go to? If you're an adult in this room and you have not thought about getting a will for yourself, I would encourage you strongly to consider the importance of a will. It's very helpful for us to understand and for kids even in the room to understand what, what picture's being painted here by describing a will. Someone's last will and testament, they're gonna write it out, probably meet with a lawyer, have it documented officially, and in the contents of that will will determine once they die what happens to all of their possessions. So the author is helping us understand by describing a will what is actually happening in the new covenant. So it is usual for children to enter into the inheritance when one or both of their parents have died. But for the the Christian's inheritance, this eternal inheritance that's described in verse 15, this is where it begins to kind of become even greater than what we experience with a will. A Christian's inheritance is the result not only of Christ's death, but also of his resurrection. So try to follow this. This actually makes Christ not only the, the, the technical term is testator, the one, who has, is the one who's, who's written the will for his, for his offspring, for those to, to gather his possessions, but also the, exec, the, the executor of the will. This makes Christ both the one who has made the will and the one who executes the will. So normally, if someone has died, there would be an executor of the will, once they've passed, who kind of walks out the details of the will, giving out the possessions, making sure that they follow to the letter exactly what the will states. Because of Christ's death, that's his will being made for those whom he's died for, but because of his resurrection, 
he is actually also the one who executes the will, meaning he's the one, because he is living right now at the right hand of the Father, he is bestowing the possessions, the inheritance to those whom he died for. It's pretty powerful to see the full scope of all that's happening in the new covenant by just understanding this comparison to a will. Now, I want us to go back a little bit further to verse 15 and answer an important question. Who are the heirs of Christ's will and testament? How can we know who, who is going to receive his inheritance? Is the inheritance of God, of Christ, left to uncertain, an indefinite group? Or does he have in view a particular people that he loves as children and to whom he leaves his eternal inheritance? So with your Bibles open, verse 15, the answer is found there, specifically in the word called. The author says, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. So who receives this eternal inheritance? Those who are called. Called by whom? Called by God. In other words, Christ's will and testament is not left to chance. These verses are so helpful in understanding God's sovereign grace in salvation. Those whom are called by God will repent of their sins and receive Christ by faith. It is a gift that is given to those whom God knew before the foundation of the earth. Just as the father knows exactly who he is leaving his inheritance to, any father or mother who's writing up a will in this room, you know who you are leaving your inheritance to. This is not like you write a will with a formal, you, you formalize it with a lawyer and you're just saying, maybe there might be someone who knew me and loved me that could receive this inheritance. No, 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 no. Christ died for the elect, for his own, purchased by the blood shed by him so that one day they would experience, receive this inheritance. God's calling guarantees that there will be inheritors to enter into the enjoyment of this inheritance, for his calling is always effectual and sure. He not only spreads this inheritance of eternal life backwards thousands of years before Christ's incarnation to those who lived by faith. So if you think about the saints of the Old Testament, those who lived by faith, believed in the promise of the one to come, they received the promised inheritance. Then looking forward thousand years after the cross and resurrection, those who live by faith, receive this promised inheritance. And even I want to remind us, encourage, encourage us, that also today God is calling people out of the kingdom of darkness and death and into the kingdom of light. 
Where there was once unbelief, there is now adoption as sons because of the work of God in sinners' lives. God calls people to himself to receive salvation in Christ and this eternal inheritance. And so if you are in Christ this morning, meaning if you have been saved by grace through faith in Christ and Christ alone, then from all eternity, God willed to pass on his eternal inheritance to you by grace. May we just marvel in God's grace. This promised inheritance is something also that we need to think about. He has not left us in the dark to wonder what he has prepared for us. In 1 Peter, the apostle gives us a passing glimpse, so to speak, of an outstanding future that awaits all Christians. He tells us that God has prepared for all his children an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. If you still have your Bibles open to this passage, verse 28, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Salvation is a comprehensive act of God that is secured by Christ and his atonement, resurrection, and ascension, and then applied by his spirit to his people. And it culminates in our glorification. Since Jesus has come and done the work necessary to save us, the salvation of his people is absolutely secure. Upon the return of Christ, what we read about in verse 28, in the words of the 1689 London Baptist Confession, we hear this description. The bodies of the unjust shall by the power of Christ be raised to dishonor, the bodies of the just by his spirit unto honor and be made conformable to his own glorious body. All of that is speaking to the resurrection. God will raise from the dead those whom he called so that they will be able to participate in this eternal inheritance that we read about in verse 15. This final inheritance will be indestructible, eternal, In the new heavens and the new earth, God will be seen and his presence will be more fully experienced than we could ever ask or imagine. Now, here's something that maybe some in this room has experienced or heard about. Parents, over the course of time, excluding their biological children from their will, maybe based off of some some situation that happened, some action that their child did that was just so grievous that they actually wrote them out of their will. Now, I think a good question to ask would be, how do I know that God won't disinherit me? Because if you're like me, you know the battle of the flesh. You continue to to struggle with sin. And this ongoing repentance and turning back to Calvary's cross is happening daily. 
How do you know that God will not disinherit you? If you, brother and sister, have repented of your sins, if you have received Christ by faith, when we talk about faith, it is faith in a person, faith in Christ. You are clinging to him as he is holding you. Some say, I have weak faith. Some say, there are seasons where I have really strong faith. Please do not confuse the reality that it is in Christ that we stand. Faith is in a person, namely the Lord Jesus Christ, who has promised that he would never leave you nor forsake you. All of his sheep he will keep. He will hold fast until the end. You are trusting in him. You're not trusting in yourself and how well you do in this life. By God's grace, he holds us, he sanctifies us, and slowly this progressive sanctification is being worked out in our lives where day by day, our lives are displaying more and more the glory of God, being more and more conformed to the image of the Son, but let us not forget our faith is in a person. I don't know if you have noticed when we read this passage, but Jesus Christ has once and for all, again and again, one time, not many times, once and for all offered himself as a sacrifice on your behalf and in your place. He suffered the penalty that all your sins, past, present, and future, deserve. That punishment, he bore. God's wrath, he satisfied. His blood has washed your guilt away fully and finally. His blood has cleansed and purified your conscience. His blood has done for you what the blood of bulls and goats during the Old Testament could never do. By his blood, he has put away your sins forever. You have been sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Again, how do I know that God won't disinherit me? Hear how Charles Spurgeon put it. Beloved, it is a thought which ought to make our hearts leap within us that through Jesus' blood, There is not a spot left upon any believer, not a wrinkle nor any such thing. Oh, precious blood, removing the hell stains of abundant iniquity and permitting me to stand accepted in the beloved, notwithstanding all the many ways in which I have rebelled against my God." Friends, we all will be judged on the basis of what we do with Jesus Christ in this life. And there will be, according to Hebrews 9, 27, there will be no second chances. To refuse the cross as the instrument of salvation is to choose it as the instrument of judgment. Let me close in reading from John 12. The one who rejects me, this is Jesus Christ speaking, and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day.
Let us pray. Father, I pray this morning that we would marvel in the new covenant. That you, by the power of the Holy Spirit, would apply these truths to our minds and our hearts, helping us to rest, to stand firm on the promises that Christ Jesus has made for his own. To think hard and long about what it means for the eternal Son of God to make a will so that those whom he died for will receive an eternal inheritance. And may we bask in the glories that are ours in Christ Jesus, the marvelous grace, the costly grace that, that has made a way for rebels, for sinners like us, who were once far from you to be brought near by the blood of the Lamb. May this, for those in Christ, be a day of rejoicing. For those outside of Christ, may the words, the truths of this passage land hard on their minds and their hearts. We plead the Holy Spirit to do the convicting work that only you can do, turning sinners from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, regenerating hearts, making the blind see, Father, we plead that this would be the day of salvation, that Christ would be all in all, we pray in his name, amen.